Hey, everybody, welcome back to this week's episode of Her with Amina Brown. And I've just had a lot of like strange schedule things going on, y'all. So I haven't been able to bring guests back into the living room, but it is that time. It is that time today. And I'm very excited about the guest who will be here with us in our living room, creator and writer of Black Liturgies, a project that integrates spiritual practice with Black emotion, Black literature, and the Black body. New York Times bestselling author of This Here Flesh, Spirituality, Liberation, and the Stories That Make Us. Welcome to the Her Living Room, Cole Arthur Riley. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I know the people are clapping too, Cole. I mean, some of them are driving, so they can't. <laughs> but the other people that aren't driving, they just clap too. I know they did. Love that. <laughs> Cole, thank you so much for joining me. Y'all, I am so excited. Cole and I are just like meeting, meeting, like getting a chance to talk in real time for the first time. But I was very mm-hmm. honored to be one of the folks who had the opportunity to get an early read on This Here Flesh and had the honor of being one of the folks to get to write some words of endorsement about this book. So New York Times, the best-selling author, Cole, how does it feel? Uh, it still feels like a dream, honestly. It's, it's, it's when, you know, people like you say it that I'm like, oh, that, that happened. That was, that was real. But yeah, it feels good and scary. And, but yeah, I'm happy. Oh my gosh. I'm, I'm so excited for you and excited for the readers as well. I mean, I know many of us, many of you listening have probably already been enjoying Cole's writing in your essays and articles. And for those of us who are followers of Black Liturgies, we've been enjoying uh, some pieces of the things that you write. But to get a chance to sort of see in this book, there is this sort of fullness that when you have encountered a writer in other short forms of writing, and then you get a chance to read their book, you know, you're sort of getting more of the story of them, the story of their process in in more of a fullness, even though I know about book writing, there are many things we have to leave out of that, <laughs> out of that process, mm-hmm. but how exciting. So I have to start with something that's very important which is snacks. And I'm starting with snacks, Cole, as the question that I want to ask you about because this this is leading into Philly food and I do need to be honest about that. But I just want to start in general with snacks because when I think about this podcast, I always think about what I do with my girlfriends and we typically get together in one another's living rooms and we're always sort of piecing together some type of snacks. If we're having a night that we're like, I don't want to go out, I don't want to see other people... (laughs) I don't want to, I don't want to do that restaurant. Like, I just want to come to your house and tell you what's up. I want to cuss. I want to watch TV, whatever it is. And we typically sort of bring our little piecemeal snack situations together. So when you get together with your girlfriends, what is your favorite snack to bring? Okay. In the past two years, this is what I'm bringing. Flaming hot Doritos, Mm -hmm. not the Cheetos, the Doritos. And if you can find the like super flaming hot Doritos that just hurt on the way down, that's what I'm bringing. So good. Twizzlers Mm -hmm. usually. And then I know this isn't really like a, people don't consider this like snack food so much, but craisins, to me, craisins taste like candy Mm -hmm. and I will stick beside them. I love craisins. It's like a sweet kind of like tart, you know, addition. I thank you for bringing craisins into the chat because they are not spoken of enough, in my opinion. I I have done my own sort of 
impromptu trail mix situation in a Craisin's bag, just mm-hmm. threw some peanuts up in there, threw an almond or two, mm-hmm. a sunflower seed, shook that up. And I'm there already. I don't even have to try to find a trail mix that has the mix of things I like. Craisins are where it's at, people. Boy, on a salad, sprinkle some craisins, mm-hmm. people. Yep. It does the work. Makes everything go down easier. Craisins. I mean, that like sweet tart situation. I want to thank you for bringing that to the table. This is my segue. We know from reading This Year Flesh that you have sort of a rootedness there in Pennsylvania and mainly in Pittsburgh, right? But you do have some roots in Philly as well, right? Yeah, yeah. I lived in Philly for a number of years. I need to talk to you about Philly food for a moment here because Uh I went to Philly and I, I am a person who enjoys a city for its food. I am into that. And I went to Philly and I really was there. I mean, maybe this is touristy of me, but I really am there just trying to get this authentic cheesesteak. And I did that. It was great. But I really need to tell you what really changed my life about Philly is the hoagie. Like I, I have a lot of emotional feelings about the hoagies (laughs) that I have enjoyed there. And there's some kind of a, first of all, I think the bread is not available where I live in Atlanta. I don't think people say they're making hoagies down here. I'm not sure they are because I don't think the bread's right. (laughs) And then there's some sort of an herb oil. There's something going on with some oil and some vinegar that when I try to buy those ingredients at the store and make a sandwich at my house, it's not doing what the hoagie (laughs) is doing in Philly. So Mm -hmm. I would like to hear your thoughts about hoagies. And then I would like to hear if you could recommend like the food people should eat in Philly. What would you say? Please discuss. Okay. I love a hoagie. I think Pittsburgh and Pennsylvania, we love a hoagie. Like you you order pizza, but you can't order pizza without ordering a hoagie where I'm from and in Philly. I think it's all in the bread. We're not at like New York City level with our breads, but we're trying. I can't remember the place we used to go. I want to say Gino's, but that doesn't sound right. Maybe I'll send it to you after and you can include a, okay. a, a hoagie shop in the show notes. I'm a big fan of dim sum. Mm, speak a word about dim sum today. Love dim sum. I love the community. I mean, COVID times have kind of changed things a little bit, but it's this communal feeling, you know, you can have a little bit of everything for people who have buyer's remorse, or, you know, are afraid. It's low risk, you know, because there's always something else that's being rotated. So love dim sum. There's a place called Dim Sum Garden Mm. on Race Street in Philly. Best soup dumplings I've ever had anywhere, including New York City. Don't come for me. Don't come for my neck. But best, I went to New York City. I was like, oh, I can't wait for these soup dumplings. They were good. But I was fantasizing about Dim Sum Garden on Race Street in Philly. You have to go. The line sometimes is out of control, but bring cash. They don't accept cards. So... That's your place for dumplings, dim sum. There's a Pakistani restaurant in West Philly called Woggy Wa. I've never in my life had Pakistani food. (laughs) Never in my life before moving to Philly. This is the only Pakistani food I've ever had. So if it's not, I mean, (laughs) the people there are from Pakistan. I assume it's authentic, but... It is so good. It's like a different kind of naan. Like the naan they serve, it's slightly different than like an, an Indian naan mm. or and definitely different than like a roti, but it's so good. They give you like a whole 
like round. It's like a pizza round <laughs> of their naan, which is good. I get the chicken tikka masala. Wow. Those are like the two big places that I have during the pandemic. Cause I live in upstate New York now and our food scene in Ithaca is just not, okay. it's, it's just not where it needs to be during the pandemic. We can't go anywhere. You know, our, our shops are shut down and our restaurants are shut down anyways for dining indoors takeout. You know, if the food's already subpar takeout, it's going to be even worse. You know? Struggles. So we drove three and a half hours to Philly twice in the past two years, just to get dim sum garden and wagi wa takeout, drive it back home, heat it up <laughs> and eat it. No lie. That's how good this food is. So yeah. Yo, I can't knock the hustle. I respect that choice because during the pandemic, I have thought several times about the food in Philly. And now you've given me additional food to think about. I have a friend in my phone. I text her sometimes just to be like, boy, that herb oil situation on those hoagies. And she'll be like, what? Why is that what I'm getting here? Why am I? Why are we doing this? And I'm like, it's important. And I don't know what you want from me. I'm just letting you know, is there a way you could get like a bottle of that and send it to me down here? Because it's not it's not computing here. So I thank you for that because I was like, I feel like Cole is going to know the vibes and you did know the vibes. Thank you, Cole, for that. Mm -hmm. I too, Philly, want to take a tour there. I too. It would be a longer yes. drive for me, Cole. But <laughs> when you said that, I was kind of like, <laughs> I was like, hey, a little bit of consideration. A little bit of consideration. <laughs> Cole, what is your favorite Black movie? Oh, Moonlight. Mm. It's not even just my favorite black movie. It's just my favorite movie, mm. Moonlight. I don't know what critique you can give that film. No. It's, it's beautiful art, nuance. Mm. I mean, talk about nuance, black characters instead of caricatures. Yep. There are some nuanced characters in that in that film that will stay with me until I die. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you haven't seen Moonlight, today is the day, tonight is the night. Oh, Watch it. Y'all have to see it. It's, it's kind of like... I I think, and I, I remember I watched this before the pandemic, but I watched it at home. I didn't watch it in the theater. And there are some movies that I'm like, man, that's a movie you should see in the theater. And I'm I'm certain I would have enjoyed Moonlight in the theater, but there was something about being at home, taking in that film, wow. taking in the the cinematography. I loved how gorgeous the skin of the characters. Yes. Um, there were so many mm -hmm. scenes where the light on the skin was just so beautiful and so many layers to that story. Ugh. Like, I don't, there was something, some some sort of sense of like comfort or the way I took that in at home that mm -hmm. I don't know if I would have taken it in exactly that way, the same if I had watched it um, in a theater. So shout out to that. Mm -hmm. I recommend y'all, tonight's your night. Get involved with Moonlight. It is yes. everything. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. What is your favorite, it could be a Black girl hairstyle as far as a hairstyle you loved when you were a little girl, or it could be currently your favorite Black woman hairstyle that you love to wear? It's got to be Senegalese twist for me. Mm. I mean, I know it might only be a few weeks <laughs> that they actually stay stay in, but I, I just feel regal. I feel so regal when I have twist or braids in. I feel more mature. I feel like I don't know. I just, this seems weird to say, but like twists, braids have a way of 
like making me take myself more seriously. I don't mm. know if it's because the women I admired growing up would have their hair in, in braided styles, but yeah, I like the way the twists look, but they just don't, they just don't last. So I need them to last all the time. But yeah, that's my favorite, favorite hairstyle when I can get it done. Times being what they are, it's hard to get my hair done the way I want. Right. No, that's a fair point. I feel like the pandemic has sort of, I think it's given me more dreams of styles I wish I could try <laughs> that I might yes. not have access to at the moment. And then there are a few things I've learned how to, I learned how to do better myself because that was the option <laughs> what to do <laughs> at my house. So I learned how to flat twist a lot better. Those flat twists were a struggle before the pandemic, but here we are. I just had time to practice. Mm -hmm. So I did. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Talk to me about your favorite song to get the party started. Like if you were at a party, what's the song that the DJ plays that you're like, and now the party has started? Okay. This is an interesting question for me because I'm, I'm not a party person. Okay. I mean, someone call me boring. <laughs> <laughs> But let me really try to take it back to like my college years. Maybe was there something in me? Probably not. <laughs> I'll tell you like when I'm in the car, what's like some pump up music? So stretch because I only listen to like sad. <laughs> like, only, like, I mean, sad it could music. be a different type of party, Cole. Maybe it's not the type of party that people, <laughs> you know, are raising the roof or whatever. Maybe your party is more of a... Of a contemplative nature. True. That's fine. You know what? That's true. That's my party. We're sitting, it's candle, a candle lit living room. We're putting on hotels 99% mm. of the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That, that's what we're putting on. That's yeah. A, that's a good choice. Shout out to Jasmine Sullivan. Mm -hmm. I want to give a big shout out to that. Yeah. Also, I want to give a shout out to this Grammy that Jasmine Sullivan just won for hotels uh. and the way. The finally. way she got, okay, okay, first of all, finally, thank you, Cole, because yes. Mm -hmm. And the way she held this space for Black women when she got up there to make her acceptance speech, like, yes, I just had to touch my hand to my heart for a few minutes. I was like, come on. I was like, I was, I was having that moment of like, oh, Jasmine, I'm looking at you. I'm so happy to see you winning. You know, like, I'm mm -hmm. just happy for you congrats to you. And then that she sort of turned that moment back to us yeah. and said like, Black women, this is for you. I was like, this it's is also ours. congratulations yeah. to me. <laughs> I love to see that. <laughs> yeah, beautiful. Oh, that's a great one. That I, I do think, number one, I do think that gets the party started. And I love envisioning various sundry types of partying, Cole. It doesn't all have to look the same. And I like I yeah. like that you brought this into the living room. You can have a party mm -hmm. to 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 contemplate some things, you know, to sit right. in the room with the people, hold space with them. I get it. I feel it. Mm -hmm. Yes. Thank you for liberating me into that. That that kind of that's the kind of party vibe I'm after. I feel it. OK, now I'm going to ask you this. You're welcome to pass. <laughs> But if you're willing to share, do you have a favorite cuss word? I don't have a favorite. I'm my the one I probably say the most is probably damn. Mm -hmm. No, it's probably shit. I probably say shit the most. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You can draw it out, you know. 
shit. Ah, come on, Cole. Yes. Um, it, it lends itself to like, to poetry, you know, to, yeah. <laughs> so it's, it, it is its own answer. It's like somehow someone could be asking a question and she could be the answer. Yes. The people who know, know when they hear that yep. answer, they're like, and I thank you. You have told me everything I need to know. You could be asking that person about a store they went to, about if they know so-and-so, mm-hmm. about if they went to the event that was last week. And if they say mm-hmm. she, which typically to me is followed with followed with or preceded by some sort of mouth noise. It's like a she. <laughs> 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 or a she. It's a little, yeah. a little mix like that, Cole. I, yes. Mm, what, what gravity that word has. I like it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. That's a good choice. Thank you. I want to talk a little bit about Toni Morrison and the work of Toni Morrison comes up in Black liturgies. We are also seeing this here in the book. I want to talk about her work and how her work is a spiritual influence with you. Talk to me more Mm -hmm. about that. Sure. Toni Morrison. So I first encountered her work in college. I'm trying to figure out a book I'd read by a Black author before college. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm currently trying to revisit some memories and try to figure out, did I even read Black authors before college? But I encountered her work for the first time in college. I, of course, knew who she was, but I'd never actually read anything. And that was around the time that I was first really experiencing a Christian spaces for the mm, first time mm. or overtly Christian spaces. And this was the first time I was going to church regularly on my own. And it was a very white evangelical space, I should say. And to me, everything about college was just new. Like people in my family didn't go to college and it was just very different from the place I was coming from. And so I kind of just looped everything that happened to me into like this one big box of like, this is the unknown, this is new. So it was very difficult for me to kind of distinguish what I was learning in the classroom, you know, from the first time to separate that from what I was experiencing and learning in church for the first time. Mm. I just couldn't compartmentalize those things. Like the compartment was college. Um, And so I found myself bringing Black, I studied English literature in the the end. I found myself bringing Black authors into the pew with me. And I mean, thank God I had them to help me interrogate some of the things I was hearing or the kind of binaries that were being presented. I just didn't find those spiritual binaries in Black literature. And I certainly didn't find them in Morrison's work. To explain that, I think Black literature, especially Morrison, there's something about how she was able to articulate the spiritual that wasn't about certainty mm-hmm. and it, it it wasn't about clarity. It was about conveying, conveying the human experience and including the spiritual in that human experience as opposed to this is what this means and, and X equals this. And, and I just love that and gravitated toward that kind of mystery. So beloved, yeah, it's the most terrifying Morrison yeah. book, I I would say. Yeah. But it's 
closest to me and closest to my spiritual formation and, mm. and beloved, there's this kind of famous clearing. This Toni Morrison gives us the space of the clearing where if you if you haven't read it, the, the matriarch, Baby Sug, she gathers her people. She sits into the, the in the middle of the clearing on this rock, and the the women and the men and the children and the, the people are are kind of waiting on the perimeter. And she says, you know, children, let the children come. And mm. and and she says, let your mothers hear you laugh. And and the kids break out laughing. And then she says, men, you know, come. Let let your wives and children see you dance. Mm. And then the you know, the men start dancing and then she calls the woman to the center and says, cry for the living and the dead, just mm. cry. And the woman let loose. And and she describes the scene where, you know, the, the, the women start laughing in the end and the men sit down and start crying and the children start dancing and they all get tangled up in each other and then exhausted, they just kind of lay there together. And then she gives her sermon. Yeah. And Morrison very specifically says she did she, she didn't tell them to go and sin no more, which is like the typical maybe white evangelical message, sure. you know, go and sin. That's the gospel, yeah. you know. So she, she says that she didn't tell them that. She called them to awaken to grace, and then she delivers this sermon that's all about the body, like um, in this year place we flesh flesh that weeps mm-hmm. laughs flesh mm-hmm. that dances on bare feet and grass love it. And it's this message of loving the body, loving the flesh. And anyways, all that to say, that moment of the clearing, it's intergenerational, you know, it's storied, it's emotional. It's not a practice of the mind. It's emotional. Yeah. It's embodied. And whenever I think about what I want my spirituality to be, I, that's where I go. That's mm. the kind of spirituality I want to, to possess. Hmm. So was Beloved your your gateway into Toni Morrison's work? Was that the first book of hers that you remember encountering? Yes, mm. it was. That was the first. Yeah, she didn't scare me away. But I mean, I, I mean yeah, that was that was the first. And it's hard. It's, it's hard to wade through. There's a real disorientation in the beginning of a lot of her work and a lot of, in a similar way, kind of to like Octavia Butler, mm. there's this beginning that is just so disorienting that you're trying to figure out what's up, what's down, what's, who's this, who's that. You know, you have the matriarch being called baby, baby sucks. Mm. You know, there's so much disor- and and you could talk for ages about that, the beauty in that, but there's something about the beginning of Beloved, that's just the slow connections and she's not quick to resolve. And I think people like things that resolve, right. you know, people want things to resolve and, and Morrison's really disinterested in that, which challenged me. Yeah, still. I mean, I love the idea that you were carrying some of this work into a church setting. Oh, I just love that because so many of Toni Morrison's books feel so much like a spiritual text. I think that's such a powerful thing to think about. I'm like, let me see what Toni Morrison books I have downstairs next time I go up (laughs) in the church. Honey, let me, let me grab one of those. And they'll be like, somebody be sitting next to me like, what is this? (laughs) This is not, I'm turned to a page and we're not on the same. Not the same. And I'm like, you mind your business and let me do what I'm doing over here. (laughs) I think my, Initial gateway into Tony's work was Tar Baby. My mom had that book oh. for some reason in her library. 
And I remember taking it out and opening up the first couple of pages. And I was young enough to know that I was reading something amazing and I did not understand a word of it. <laughs> I was like, this is amazing. What is she talking about? <laughs> I don't know. And then I think I tried Beloved at 12 and it was all wow. manner of confusions. <laughs> it was all mm-hmm. manner of who's alive and who died? <laughs> <laughs> right. And who died but is still alive? Yeah. <laughs> like all of yeah. I mean, now Cole, I have which which is something that I really loved about this here flesh. I loved this about your book. It had this it had this sense of feeling so grounded, so rooted, uh, rooted in people, in place. I loved that. And I loved that there was this way you sort of left a lot of um, space out there for us as the reader. You left Mm -hmm. a lot of space for us to not come into the text of your book and feel like you were there to give us answers. You were there to sort of be this in some ways, you sometimes felt like you were author, but also observing and that you were mm-hmm. sort of encouraging us as the reader. We step back and sort of we look, we see, we think about what we perceive. Right. And then there were times you're sort of inviting us into stories that happened to you or happened to members of your family. And then there were times that in that you were sort of there at the center of the story because it is mm-hmm. happening to you or as the story is being told to you, you know. And I loved that sort of breathing room that you left in there. And I think that is something as a writer, I always admired about authors like Toni Morrison, that it was not to write a story to say, and here we derive an answer. That that was never the point, that it was to say, and here we are being. Mm -hmm. We're present in a space. We'll laugh, we'll cry. We will wonder the page may end and we still don't know what happened to so-and-so. Mm-hmm. And maybe you yeah. need to think about that reader, you know? Um, I really, really loved that. Do you have a favorite of Toni Morrison's work that you you love or is Beloved that favorite for you? Beloved is definitely that favorite. Mm. I mean, it's traumatizing. Yeah. Trauma on those pages, but... There's so much beauty and I just think it's so complicated, maybe in a similar, for, for similar reasons as, as why I love Moonlight. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's such a, such a complicated story where, you know, a person's motives are never completely clear. You know, no one is completely good. No one's completely evil. I think it's, yeah. I mean, you see that in a lot of her work, but yeah, Beloved's definitely, definitely my favorite. I was thinking when you were talking about that clearing scene, I was like, what of Toni Morrison's work makes me feel that feeling? I think for me, it's the character of Pilot in Song of Solomon. I have actually mentioned this to uh, a couple of friends to say, as I think about my Black woman spirituality at this season of my life, I sort of imagine myself in certain ways how Pilot appears in that story. For those of you that haven't read it, I mean, everything that Toni Morrison writes, just go, just go read it. (laughs) But in Song of Solomon, if I'm remembering right, 
I would love to reread this again now. I also sort of entered Toni Morrison's work really in college. I had those initial encounters when I was younger, but when you're in college, you're now getting to read these texts and sort of pull certain things out of that and think about the themes. And you have other uh, historical texts that may be sitting around that or other right. fictional texts sitting around that, which is something that um, I don't want to go back to some of how college was, but that part I did love. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, I'm like, I wouldn't want to write all the essays again. Maybe not that part, but the part where the books got to be in conversation with each other really loved that. And there was mm-hmm. this sense in Song of Solomon that Pilate and her daughters, who are technically aunt and cousin to these other male characters that we're hearing about, that they're sort of existing on the periphery of what is considered acceptable in the society of their town. They, they, to me, seemed like these Black women with hairy legs and who Mm -hmm. will not shave an underarm and who will dress however they will dress and it doesn't matter whatever is in fashion in the department store down there. We are here growing cabbage and growing collards outside (laughs) of our house vibes, you know. And I was like, mm-hmm. the older I get, the more and more I feel a little like that. <laughs> I feel a little like <laughs> I'm starting to like, but I guess in a way called spiritually, you know, sort of looking at some of these characters in the same way that you were talking about this character in Beloved. There's something about Pilot being this Black woman with no belly button. Oh, Toni Morrison. And we have this mm-hmm. question of, I remember that. does she birth herself? Is that why she has no belly button? And we're not given any explanation as to why. It is not Mm -hmm. really addressed (laughs) pretty much at any point later in the book. There's a lot of other things going on. But I just gravitated to her and just thought spiritually, what does that mean? What does it mean? What are the ways a Black woman gives birth to herself? What does that look like? I mean, oh, that a writer could make you contemplate those things. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. When I was just reading you uh, writing about Beloved in This Year Flesh and even some of that terminology of This Year Flesh sort of coming back to us from Toni Morrison, I just thought, I resonate with that, Cole. I resonate with how, to me, your book and what you were talking about there in Beloved are in conversation. Did you feel that way too? Yes. I, I mean, I, I was hoping. I was it's a tall order. It's hard sure. to kind of approach her work because for so many of us, she's just hero. But I knew if I'm going to write a book that contains Christianity, I need to really be faithful to the way Black literature has spiritually formed me. You know, I'd, my, I, I wanted to be faithful to my the entirety of my spiritual formation, which exists in and outside of a Christian tradition. And it included Black literature. It included, you know, my family who aren't overtly religious. And so I needed to pull in, you know, things like storytelling and things like myth even so that it felt true that, you know, my dad, he's such a big part of the book. He wouldn't say he's a Christian. So how could I write a book that contains so many of his stories and these precious, these sacred artifacts and have the book contained by Christianity alone. It just didn't feel right. I needed to incorporate these other things. And 
in that way, I was able to kind of uh, approach people like Morrison and really figure out, man, what did this do to me? You know, how is this a sacred text to me? And and who are people in my life who are going to be terrified to hear that this is a sacred text to me? Yeah. You know, and and do I care? Do I want yeah. them? Do I want them in the writing room with me? You know, so yeah, it brought up a lot of good questions. Mm. Mm. I love that. I want to ask also. I guess I have a question that sort of comes with a comment or a reflection on something I also loved about the way you chose to approach spirituality and spiritual practice in this book. I really loved that it seemed like there was this space for the reader, like if you're here, reader, and Christian tradition is what you ascribe to, you're welcome. If you're here, reader, and you don't ascribe to that at all, you're welcome. If you're here, reader, and you used to ascribe to that, and now you've got lots of questions and tensions here, you're welcome to. And I think that's a wonderful gift in a book that wants to bring sort of questions and beauty and tensions of spirituality to the table to be that welcoming, uh, that in a text people would feel like they can come to the page there, wherever they are. Was that Mm -hmm. something that as you were writing felt like intentional on your part? Or did you feel as you were bringing your family stories, your own stories of formation, that that was just a present theme for you as well? It it was intentional because I've read books by authors who are Christian that kind of are trying very hard to teach you what to think and what to believe. And I think, you know, maybe if Christianity didn't have the history that it did, that would feel less problematic. But because it's been so perverted in and through white supremacy, yeah, I had to, <laughs> I, I I really wanted to push myself to to be honest about all of my uncertainties. The thing about what how how whiteness moves in 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 spiritual spaces, specifically in Christianity, is, you know, that supremacy that it craves in terms of politics, in terms of socioeconomic power, it also craves in terms of religion. It doesn't just want to, you know, have a spirituality. Its spirituality needs to be supreme. It needs mm. to be the best thing. It needs to be the right thing. And so so much of our so much of Christian formation in certain spaces is about convincing you that you are right, this is right, and these other things aren't right. And I think that's completely, you know, a symptom of, of white supremacy and, and mostly that. And I just resist that. I reject that. I don't want that to be my spiritual formation. It's hard. That's hard conditioning that, yeah. that a lot of us have endured, that your, your spiritual belief system has to be above in order for it to be, to, in order for it to matter, in order for it to be meaningful. I've always been a skeptic. My, my, my you know, the thing that my family says about me is, you know, we'll say, Nicole was born a skeptic. You came out as, <laughs> as a skeptic um, from the time I was a child. And I've always been a very uncertain person, a very like, you know, maybe, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. (laughs) Um, And to be honest about that and writing this first book was really important because, you know, ultimately I'm going to have to answer to myself, my 50-year-old self, my 60-year-old self. I want to be able to look back and say, I told the truth. You know, I might, I probably said some things that were wrong. I probably, I probably said things that I, 
you know, won't believe anymore by the time I'm 60, but did I tell the truth? Mm. And that became the lens through which I wrote, like, are you telling the truth about you with the information that you have and the experiences that you've had to this point? And as long as I, I did that, I had that kind of fidelity to self. I feel like I was able to write very compassionately toward readers mm. who really don't know what they think, you know, yeah. who really don't know what they believe, but they're they've been trained to think that they're supposed to know all of these things with certainty. Do you have a favorite spiritual practice right now or in this season of your life? Yes. I have complicated feelings about this spiritual practice. I've criticized it, actually. It's silence. Mm. Um, Yeah. I think there are a lot of valid critiques that I share about silence as a spiritual practice, especially, you know, for those of us who have been silenced by the societies that were being brought up in my whiteness. And so I have a complicated relationship with silence because I, I, I was not a very verbal child. I talk about that in the book some. I had something called selective mutism, which is, you know, a, a childhood anxiety disorder, essentially, which makes it very difficult to speak around strangers. So I've always had a very tricky relationship with silence. Like it always felt like something I needed to overcome and conquer. But in this season, it's been really healing for me to try to find some good. Was there something, was there something special in those, you know, moments of silence that I I shared with myself as a little girl? You know, maybe there was something that was all about insecurity and anxiety, but also was there something else there? Something I was listening to in myself that, you know, a way that I became nearer to myself. So anyways, I've been trying to practice a kind of redemptive silence and it feels really empowering. Mm, I love that. I love adding the word redemptive to that or redemptive silence, which is sort of a Mm -hmm. finding sometimes a a fresh way or a different way and maybe a different way than maybe what we were taught of how we use silence or how we're supposed to embrace that or not, you know, all the things. Mm -hmm. I love the idea that even finding new or different ways to do that can be redemptive. I want to read a quote from your book. You wrote, joy, which once felt as frivolous as love to me, has become a central virtue in my spirituality. I am convinced that if we are to survive the weight of justice and liberation, we must become people capable of delight and people who have been delighted in. I love that. What's bringing you joy right now? Well, reading usually brings me joy, but specifically I'm reading two books. I'm reading Pleasure Activism Mm. and I'm reading Black Joy by Tracy Lewis Giggitz. Mm. There's an M in there, I think. I'm reading Black Joy. Anyway, it's a bright yellow book, red and black lettering, and everyone should go out and buy it (laughs) at a local bookstore. And it's bringing, I mean, that book in particular, both of those books in different ways are bringing me joy because they're really giving me permission to experience joy in the ways that feel right to me as opposed to mimicking the joy around me. Mm. And I think just like many emotions, although I think joy is something bigger than an emotion, but I think like many other emotions in my life, I can tend to mirror them in other people as opposed to actually having them originate in me and like emanate out. Instead, it's like they come to me and they kind of rest on my skin, but they don't ever really get in. And I think that's what joy has been for so long. And, and 
you know, both of those books is just telling me it's okay. What does this look like for you? And and for me, it might not look like, you know, my, my sister who's very, very verbal and very um, charismatic and just so fun. And for me, it looks like more peace. It looks like, you know, sitting and, and, you know, staring at something beautiful and trying to find some sense of peace and trying to be honest about the things that I delight in as opposed to hiding from them. Mm. I also want to ask you this question related to joy as well. As people read this here flesh, what do you hope they understand about the connection between joy and liberation? I hope that they would understand that the journey toward liberation and deeper liberation, it doesn't need your your liberation isn't isn't bigger. It's not deeper, you know, the deeper your trauma is or something like that, which I think we, we never articulate that necessarily. But I think that, you know, those are the stories we're given, right. you know, the, the, the ending, the, the ending is better because of the depth of the pain. I used to think that, um, sadly, I don't think that anymore. I think you're, we will not get there. We, I don't think we'll get there. And I'm not talking about liberation as linear. I mean, I won't yeah. get there on a day-to-day basis. I won't, I, I, I can't approach it if I don't have some kind of habits and systems set up in my life that will keep me from despair. Yeah. Because I think liberation, you know, demands that we become very honest about the pain and about the terrors, you know, it demands kind of an unflinching awareness of all those things. I'm not, if, if you're really... If you're really telling the truth, if you're really paying attention to the pain, I, I find it very difficult to believe that you can approach liberation without first becoming succumbed by despair. Mm. And I think, you know, joy keeps us from that. And I think we're seeing that, you know, this explosion in the past few years of literature, of art, of content, if you want to call it that online, that is kind of just pulling you know, you see something different that's pulling on Black people, you know, in the wake of the summer of 2020, for yeah. example, yeah. and what was pulling at other people. Mm-hmm. You know? right. There was this sinister kind of hunger for pain awakened in some people. But then I saw, and like my Black friends, there was this appetite for joy yeah. and people didn't understand it. They didn't yeah. know what to do with the memes and the videos and the like, how could you do this now? Mm-hmm. You know? And it's like, well, you don't know. This is how we, this is how we've survived. And we have, we have inherited this. We have inherited this very rich system of joy as a means, not for just survival, but also thriving, yeah. you know, and, and flourishing. So anyways, that was a, a rant. That was a bit of a rant, but I, I love <laughs> as a someone who's like demeaned joy for so long, I feel like I'm speaking to myself, you know? Mm, yeah. Yeah. I, I love a good rant, Cole. So, you know, anytime you have a rant, you know, I'm always, <laughs> I'm always here for that. I, I keep a little rant in my pocket just because you never know when you need one. <laughs> just need a little rant sometimes. That's all. Cole, how can the people stay connected to you and your New York Times bestselling book and your work. Tell me where the people should go. This year, Flesh, it's available anywhere books are sold, but preferably um, a local Black-owned bookstore. Yeah. You could buy it there. That just, yeah, does extra work, really. And then you can find me at coalarthurreilly.com and there will lead you to 
any social media that you have that you want to follow, but you can also sign up for my newsletter where I'll share, you know, if I have articles published places. So go to there, people go to there and do those things. Cole, what an honor to get to speak with you today. It's been so great. My honor. Oh, like I'm so excited. I'm so excited. So thank you for being here with us in the Her Living Room. I cannot handle the spice of those flaming hot Doritos, but I would <laughs> be with you while you had some while we're here in the living Solidarity. room. Solidarity. Yes, I would do that. I would be here with you. So thank you so much for joining me. Amina Brown is produced by Matt Owen for Soul Graffiti Productions as a part of the Seneca Women Podcast Network in partnership with iHeartRadio. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast.